The Bible reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 24. You can follow along on the overhead, or it's on page 552 of the Church Bibles. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is this really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? I don't, go, I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here, he will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, a troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am, the one, of the, I am one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. 
Then all the people said, what you say is good. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I think we should pray and then we'll get into the passage. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we love you, but we don't love you enough. And we feel the pull on our hearts in many ways for you to remain central and it's a struggle, we confess. So we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would speak to us. And if we are tempted to follow other gods, that is to worship other things, to treat other things more important in our lives, we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us and you'd encourage us to remain true to you. And you'd encourage us as we live our lives out in beyond this place, uh, mixing with people who, have, who don't know you. Please encourage us. And if we're exploring things, are you real, are you not? then please speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the stage was set for the competition, and I reckon most of us would love to see a competition like that, wouldn't you? I mean, the moment of vindication, when uh, if you're a Christian, you're saying, yes, see, it's right, I've been right. Uh, If you're confused, uh, you're saying, ah, now I know. Um, If you're just checking things out, oh, suddenly things are clear. The Lord versus Baal, the Lord versus the detractors, the mockers, the Lord in our context versus the secular academics, the hostile media hosts who want to sneer at Christians and make us feel second rate for daring to believe. I think we'd love it because whilst Australia, I don't want to be a gloomy, you know, stuck in the mud, terrible naysayer here but it is it is hard isn't it it's it's and probably the the atmosphere is it's getting harder to be openly christian on thursday i spoke to a lawyer here in adelaide who represented a christian university student josh josh went to a local church he was encouraged to live out his faith at uni he was studying with um, another girl she in the course of their study she became very anxious uh, this was a she admitted this was a problem for her he he asked whether he could pray for her well that was a bit weird but she said she gave her permission yes she said actually I'm an atheist but thank you a few days later uh, he rocked up to class and this girl was standing in a group uh, before the class and they called him over and the, and one of the other girls said What would you say if you found out that someone in your class was gay? And he said, well, um, of course I'd be their friend. I'd I'd still try and love them. Um, I wouldn't agree with necessarily the step they were taking, but what do you think? He put it out to them. No one said anything. And the girl that he had prayed with kind of looked down. A couple of days later, he was called up by the university authorities and reprimanded because he uh, dared to force his beliefs upon someone and was given disciplinary action, told you cannot speak to this girl again. Well, of course, the trick was Josh, uh, in his course, was um, heading up a, a, a um, group project and he had to speak to her. He said, he said to her once, would you like to contribute? And then he was reprimanded. Six months banned from university. Uh, it was discipline reaction on his academic record because he was trying to live out his faith. The lawyer, of course, stepped in for him and challenged the university, which in their um, statement of beliefs or whatever says, uh, we will respect people's religious beliefs and saying you're not respecting his. So they backed down. Okay. 
but far out, right? <laughs> um, that's all he was doing. Now, if you're at uni, I don't want to discourage you from speaking out, right? Uh, because I know the name of this lawyer, right? If you get in trouble, just come and see me. Okay. This was 2016 when that happened. It wasn't that long ago. It's just one example of how things are hotting up for Christians. And of course, this is nothing new for Jesus' disciples. The good news is that he tells us what to do. He says, when you pray, the first thing you're to ask of our Father is, Father, hallowed be your name. May your name, may your character, may who you are, may you be increasingly set apart and revered in people's minds and hearts. Because that's the issue, isn't it? It's to be our first prayer, our number one desire, and we're to ask God that God would make it happen in Australia, in Adelaide. And for our encouragement, God's answer to our prayer is given in a preview in 1 Kings 18. Now, this story, which we've heard a, sort of the introduction read, is a high point. It's a great story. If you're just coming in today, we've been working our way through 1 Kings, and the kingdom of God under Solomon and the kings after him is a kind of preview of the kingdom of God to come. But as we've followed the story, it has descended into evil. By the end of last week, the nation had abandoned the Lord completely. Their king, King Ahab, married to Queen Jezebel, had encouraged everyone to abandon the Lord and to worship the Canaanite fertility god Baal and Ashtoreth. In fact, any worship was really legitimate except worship of Yahweh, the Lord God, the God whom Jesus taught us to call Father. In consequence, our father, Yahweh, sends his prophet Elijah, who last week in chapter 17 promised a famine. There will be neither dew nor rain in all Israel for the next few years except at my word. This was a clear challenge and ultimatum to Baal, who supposedly was the god of rain. And what followed were two preliminary showdown matches between Baal and Yahweh, and in each case, Baal, uh, sorry, Yahweh, not Baal, <laughs> sorry, Yahweh, Yahweh was the life-saving God. His word, not Baal's, had the power to give life. And that brings us to today. They were the showdown. Today is the grand final. But before the starter horn sounds, God speaks to encourage us. First of all, he says the famines will end. Famines. Verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So there's the promise that the famine caused by drought, will end. And we have a promise, don't we, that ultimately when Jesus returns, the suffering in our world caused by a creation that is still under God's curse, that will end. The drought will end in Australia. There's a promise. Okay, so the drought will end. There's one, the famine will end. One, that's one famine. The other famine, of course, is the famine of the word of God. Elijah's been the last vocal prophet in Israel. He's been silent for a very long time. Three and a half years. For Israel, God is now breaking the famine. He's speaking. If you're familiar with the Narnia stories, you might say Aslan is on the move. Okay. And we need to remind ourselves of this if we feel like, you know, we're the only Christian at school, we're the only Christian in our class, we're the only Christian at work or in our family. All right? It won't always be that way. God has promised that one day, the famine will end. The earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That is his promise. 
In fact, Elijah's times really are not that dissimilar to our own. We see it in Obadiah, the servant of Yahweh. That's what his name means, Obadiah, servant of Yahweh. He's Obadiah, a devout believer in the Lord, but he's serving as chief administrator to the king who hates God. Does that seem familiar maybe for maybe a context which you might be in, serving Yahweh but under a hostile kind of unbelieving um, authority? He's in an almost impossible situation to be the servant of two masters. He manages it, but it's hard. Whilst Jezebel, the queen, is killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah has arranged protection and provision for 100 of them. This is very impressive. He's got them water in a time of drought. This is very impressive. But no doubt it was taking its toll. He's concerned to save human lives. The king, Ahab, his main concern is to keep the horses alive. (laughs) I've got a lot of respect for Obadiah. Would he have lived with stress and anxiety? Absolutely. But he used his official position to serve the Lord and to save life, even though, to his understanding, he was alone and he was risking his life in doing so. You get a glimpse of the stress when he happens upon Elijah and Elijah tells him um, to let Ahab know that he's back. And Obadiah says, what have I done wrong? that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. There's not a nation or a kingdom where my master hasn't sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom's claimed you weren't there, he made them swear that they couldn't find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, guess what, Elijah's here. You know, I don't know where the spirit of the Lord's going to carry you when I leave you. You know, if I go and tell Ahab he doesn't find you and he doesn't find you, he's going to kill me. And yet I have worshipped Yahweh since my youth. Haven't you heard what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. Now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here, he's going to kill me. Now I take it that blurt, (laughs) that's the technical term, uh, from Obadiah, is there to encourage any of us who feel alone and strained in our efforts to remain true to God at the same time as having to serve amongst people who hate the Lord. Right? Obadiah felt it too. There's pressure. But also there's assurance in the pressure. It won't go on forever. To Obadiah, Elijah says, as surely as Yahweh Almighty lives, I will present myself to Ahab today. So Ahab ends up meeting Elijah. And you can imagine the tension in the air. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I haven't made trouble for Israel. So he's standing up to the king, isn't he? Few people would. I haven't made trouble for Israel. You and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands. You have followed the Baals. And then Elijah calls the contest. All of Israel are now to gather together on Baal's home ground, right? Mount Carmel. It's right on the coast up near sort of the northern part of Israel. You can still go there. Um, It's Baal's Bluff, basically. It's, 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 you know, a promontory out there, a a plateau where everyone can gather. There will be the grand final. Elijah versus the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Why this contest? You know, why not just send rain if Yahweh has decided to end the drought? Answer, because more is at stake than just crops. Yahweh's name is at stake. 
Baal is a fraud. But if it starts raining, guess who's going to get the glory? Baal, right? And Yahweh is the true and living God. That needs to be revealed. And so comes the day of revelation, the day of revealing, that day when everyone will see. Actually, a preview of the day, well, what we're about to see is the preview of the day of revelation spoken in the book of Revelation, when all that is true of God and all that is false and of Satan will be revealed and everyone will see. 1 Kings 18 is a preview of that day. In verse 21, Elijah challenges the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The one who is truly God is the one to be followed. You know, to live our lives undecided, to live our lives with a foot in both camps, to live our lives hedging our bets, or maybe pretending to follow God as kind of a divine insurance, but in our hearts, worshipping another way. That is wrong. That is wrong. That is false. There is one way, and there is only one way to treat the one who is truly God, and that is to follow him. That's what you do with the one who is God. You follow him like Elijah. His very name means the Lord is my God. And through his words, the Lord is issuing a clear call for the people to stop living a double life. If the Lord isn't God, don't follow him. If he is God, follow him. Put so starkly, it seems so clear, doesn't it? But put so, so starkly, the divided loyalties of our hearts are laid bare. And that's uncomfortable. And when the people heard Elijah, the people said nothing. But they really need the truth revealed, and so do we. Maybe you're here today and you're not following the Lord. Maybe it's not clear to you if the Christian God really is, really is God. Maybe you're here today, you realize that you've been hedging your bets, following multiple gods, if truth be told. Maybe you're here today, you've struggled in following the Lord. It's hard. All of us can be helped by getting clarity on who God really is. Elijah says, here's the contest. I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it in pieces and be put on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. And then you call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of the Lord Yahweh and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And now the people have something to say. They say, yeah, what you say is good. <laughs> Elijah says, since there's so many of you prophets of Baal, you go first. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it first. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they prepare it. And then comes a very funny scene, really. It's laughable. Uh, from morning to noon, six hours, they call on the name of the Lord, they, Lord of Baal. Sorry, they dance around the altar. They shout to him, Baal, answer us. And, of course, the reason why they have to dance and shout is because Baal isn't really, well, even in their thinking, he's not really interested. He's, um, they have to exert a lot of energy to even get his attention. He's disinclined to even notice them. So they yell and shout to attract his attention. Result, there's no response. No one answered. 
And so at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. He said, surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Perhaps he's on the toilet. Perhaps he's, that's the NIV, has a polite translation of that, but that's what it means. Um, Perhaps he's traveling. Perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shout louder and they slash themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom. In other words, Baal hasn't answered them a lot in the past and they have to exert themselves and lacerate themselves to show how sincere they are in their worship and how much they want him to answer. Midday passes and they continue their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, right? All day they've spent themselves. You'd think surely Baal would have, well, his attention would be towards them now. His prophets have given him their, their best. Um, if ever Baal had a, had a moment to display his potency, this was it. His credibility as the God of fire and rain is on the line. This is his moment to prove himself, verse 29. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It wasn't that Baal was impotent. It was that he was non-existent. He was a nothing. There is no God called Baal. He's completely fictional. Elijah said to the people, come here to me. Yahweh's turn. They came to him. Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord using 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Jacob. It's a national rebuke at the apostasy that led to the kingdom being divided. It's a symbol that the Lord was going to still be the God of all of his people. It's a sign that he would restore the people once again. And then, of course, Elijah, as we saw in the kids' talk, stacks the odds against Yahweh being able to win. He digs a trench around the altar. He prepares the bull. He lays it on the wood. And he has the people drench the sacrifice with four large jars of water. Once, twice, three times. And then at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. And without any need to shout, without any need to dance or slash himself and make his blood flow to get his father's attention, he simply prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Everything is on the line here. Yahweh's credibility is the real God. Yahweh's willingness to hear and to answer. Yahweh's willingness to begin again in his relationship with his people. I say that because twice... Previously in the history of Yahweh with his people, he is answered by fire. The first was at the, the first uh, service at the tabernacle, the tent around which the tribes of Israel would camp. He was God setting up the means for him to live with his people. Key moment. And at the very first tabernacle service after Aaron and his sons have been ordained, at the end when Aaron's giving his benediction, Leviticus 9.21, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions of the altar. Second moment, at a key time when the angel of death in David's, David's life, when he was extending his hand over the people because of David's sin, 
David steps in and at the exact spot that the, later on the temple would be built, the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, David steps in there to make atonement as the angel's hand is stretched out with a sword in it. David makes atonement and then 1 Chronicles 21, 26, the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. Two key times whereby fire from the, the Lord signaled a new moment, a new beginning in Yahweh's relationship with his people. This is the third big moment, right? Elijah realizes it. He prays. He asks for God to answer so that his people will know that you, Lord, are God. And you're turning their hearts back again. Verse 38. Then... The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. Revelation by fire. It was clear to everyone there that there was one God and his name was Yahweh and he was Lord. And so when all the people saw this, there was no doubt in their mind. There's no confusion. There's no uncertainty anymore. They all felt prostrate down and they cried, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Every tongue confessing, every knee bowing. What follows are two necessary consequences. The first one's the hard one. First of all, the destruction of the false prophets, those who set themselves up to oppose Yahweh. In verse 40, at Elijah's command, the prophets of Baal are seized, taken to a valley, and slaughtered. That is... There are life and death consequences for opposing Yahweh, the God of life. Death, destruction, that's the first necessary consequence. The second is the welcome one, the end of famine, the life consequence, because of the end of drought. Elijah tells Ahab to go and eat and drink because of the sound of heavy rain. <laughs> it's not a cloud in the sky. Elijah climbs to the top of Mount Carmel, bends down, puts his face between the knees. He's praying. He tells his servant to look towards the sea. Nothing. Six times he says, go back and look. Nothing. Do it again one more time. A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. It's an astounding story, isn't it, of, of the Lord answering Elijah's prayer and hallowing his name in the eyes of all people. And it opens our eyes to what it will mean when God answers our prayer to hallow his name. What will it mean? There are seven points. They are slightly a different order on your outline. First of all, God will reveal himself in fire. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. The Lord will reveal himself in fire. Secondly, on that day, all doubts will be dispelled, all uncertainty will cease. There will be no more confusion. It will be undeniably clear who is the Lord Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh. Every knee will bow to him, not out of force, but because there will simply be no other conclusion. 
everyone will be struck by the majesty of his power and the authority of his reign. We will fall before him. It will be automatic. There will be no other reaction, human reaction, that is possible at that point. Third, as with the prophets of Baal, all opponents of God will be destroyed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of his majesty. Fourth, this will necessarily flow from the real moment of victory, which happens not then, but actually happened earlier at the cross. It's interesting, on Mount Carmel, God's vindication of himself, that was the moment of the real victory. The slaughter, if you like, was the outworking of the prior contest. In the New Testament, the real moment of vindication for God is not the slaughter on the last day or the destruction of people who oppose him. The real moment of vindication for God is in Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. That's where he shows himself to be truly God. That time when the sky grew dark, when Jesus cried his last, when the offering for sin was made once and for all and the power of Satan to condemn was taken away from him. That's when the Lord proved himself to be really God. And the moment of his vindication was uh, in the heavenly realms was in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the later destruction, of course, of those who oppose him, though big, that is only an outworking of the prior victory, which has already happened. Fifth, there will be laughter on that day. Now, this may feel odd, but there will be. Just as Elijah's taunt of the prophets of Baal is really funny, actually. <laughs> He's on the toilet, shout louder. You can imagine it in a Monty Python skit, can't you? Um, there will be laughter on the last day when the, those who oppose God are put down. Not a malicious laughter, but a laughter of vindication. Revelation chapter 18 describes the destruction of Babylon, the nation symbolic for all who oppose God. Chapter 19 describes the roar of a great multitude of saints, the people of God, who are shouting now in delight and praise of God because of his judgment on Babylon. And if we find that uneasy, if we think, how could I possibly take part in that? Can I say, if you are saved by Christ, if you are one of the saints, you will, you will be sharing in that because we're told you will. It will be, that laughter, that cry of delight will be on your voice. Sixth, the day of Christ will spend the, spell the end of all famine, by which I mean the end of physical famine, the suffering that plagues our world. And it will be the, the end of the other famine, the famine of the word of God, because God himself will live with us, we will be his people, and he will be our God. Okay, that's then, what about now? What does 1 Kings 19, 18 tell us about how God answers our prayer for God to hallow his name amongst us now? Last point. He is issuing, through this contest, a clear call for us to follow him now. God is asking, how long will you waver between two opinions? Who is it, what is it, that you're most tempted to give your heart to it instead of to the Lord? Is it your career? Is it your security? 
your superannuation portfolio, which you're trying to build? Is it your pride? Is it your children? Is it your girlfriend or boyfriend? Who is it? And what is it that you think gives you life? Baal was meant to be the God of life. Elijah said, if Baal is God, follow him. But if the Lord is God, follow him. That's the choice and it's stark, but it's the necessary choice. What we must do for whoever is God is not hedge our bets, not fake our worship whilst doing something else in private. What we must do, what we cannot fail to do for the one who alone is truly God, the God of life, is follow him. We give him everything. And Jesus taught us to make this our chiefest desire that when we pray, first thing, first cab off the rank, top of the pops, first request, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen.